Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 348, Interview with Scott Burry about his Eastern Front trilogy. Writer Scott Burry joins us today to talk about the real-life experiences of one Maurice Burry, a Canadian who gets drafted into the Soviet Red Army just in time for Operation Barbarossa. He is eventually captured by the Germans, put to work, but then manages to escape, where he ends up back with the Red Army against his will when all he wants to do is go home. For a complete list of Scott Burry's books, go to scottburryauthor.com. Mr. Burry, thank you very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure, Ray. So I have to tell you this. So um, this is probably going to be one of the weirdest introductions to a show I've ever done, but here I am. I'm 55 years old. I've read all these books. I've seen movies, documentaries, diaries, memoirs, you know, articles, everything I can get my hands on about World War II, getting pretty cocky, thinking I know things. And then I come across your story. I'd never heard of them before. I was like, oh my, this is amazing. Uh, and it just goes on and on and on. So that's why I wanted to bring you on today, because it was something completely new. And so for the listeners to have something to hang their hats on until we can get more into this conversation. Let me just mm-hmm. tease them, if I may, with this. Uh, Absolutely. Picture someone who was not a citizen of Soviet Russia fighting for Soviet Russia against the Germans when they come during Operation Barbarossa. Picture that person fighting for a while, obviously trying to explain that they're not a citizen of the Soviet Union, but they really don't care because they need all the fighters they can get. He is captured by the Germans. He escapes. He fights for the Soviets again. And he actually is a part of the uh, uh, the units that, that march on Berlin itself. And then he's got to try to figure out um, how to get home. Because again, he shouldn't be there in the first place. There's a whole bunch of mix up. But when it comes to the, uh, I guess, the needs of a country in war, they really don't care about the niceties. So, so Mr. Burry, thank you very much for discovering the story. Thank you for writing the story. Because I literally, and I didn't tell you this earlier when we were talking, you and I spoke on Monday. I burned through all three books oh, wow. just to get ready for this day. That's how good they just they just kept me going. So I, I just wanted to thank you very much for that. So um, let's start at the beginning. Why did you write a trilogy about the war on the Eastern Front? Well, um, I first uh, met Maurice, my father-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, through uh, through of course my wife, uh, his daughter at the time, and when we first started going out, you know, start to get to know each other, and she tells me about her father, and right. he sort of mentions in passing uh, <laughs> as part of another conversation that he had served in the Soviet Red Army, and I sort of you know, wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> like the average Canadian, and, yeah. <laughs> and then I have to back up, and you know, and he was born in Montreal, right, and. Yeah. Okay, and that, so I had to figure this out. Like, how did he 
uh, end up in the Soviet Red Army in 1941. Right. Um, and uh, it's it, there's a lot of you know, a lot of history goes into that mm-hmm. little event. And it's like when you're doing any research into history, you find any single event has so many drivers, so much background yes. from so many different directions that lead up to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get things, you know, there, he had been born in 1919 in Montreal to Ukrainian uh, um, immigrants. Uh, they had a small business. Depression came along and, um, you know, the business was struggling Meanwhile, they still had land, a farm, back in Europe. And, and at that point, it was in Poland, right, in eastern Poland. Um, and so they went back there to, you know, where they would have a farm and they could at least make their own food mm-hmm. uh, until the Depression was over. Because, you know, what else could happen between the Depression and, yeah. you know, recovery? How can it get any worse? <laughs> yeah, then it gets worse. Uh, and the other, another sort of driver to this is the, the you know, the many-sided politics of uh, mm. Eastern Europe at the time right. and the shifting borders. And so the Molotov von Ribbentrop non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union right. comes into play. Uh, because uh, between the two of them, they divided Eastern Europe, of course, into spheres of influence. Mm. And what that the upshot of that was that when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, September 1st, 1939, thereby starting the Second World War, right. two weeks later, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east, right. and they met at their you know, predetermined um, border, mm-hmm. Uh, one of the rivers, I mean, this for the moment, but anyway, uh, and then the breweries found themselves on the uh, USSR side of that line. So at that point, right. um, Maurice and his family were Soviet residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in 1941, of course, he gets the, uh, the draft notice, and as I described in the book, right. You know, goes to the armory where he's supposed to report for duty, right. shows the uh, recruiting officer, as it were, or, or to be, uh, use a gentle term, uh-huh. and says, well, here's my birth certificate. See, I'm a Canadian, so I don't have to serve in the Red Army. <laughs> okay. And uh, the officer said, oh, nice try, comrade. <laughs> yeah. You live here now. Yeah. You Serve the motherland. Congratulations. So that was it. He was yeah. in the Red Army. Right. So his name was Maurice Burry. Was he taking classes as well? I remember something about students, him hanging out with students. Or am I getting that? Um, yeah. Well, he was a, uh, a student at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, up to the oh. takeover by the USSR, ended up closing what was called the gymnasium, which was a kind of a in between high school and university mm-hmm. uh, stage, uh, quite common in Eastern Europe. Right. Uh, he was so he was going to this gymnasium or gymnasium uh, that was run by the church, ah. um, and so it was you know part way through basically pre med or science education, and uh, then the Soviets closed the school down, so he was back home working on the farm. Mm-hmm. And um, and then in the winter he got his draft notice. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's that's and, a very memorable scene. I'm sorry, that's a very memorable scene as well because the sheer desperation of this young man. He's got this piece of paper like his talisman that's going to save him from everything, and it saves him from nothing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it did. It did have um, 
a role to play toward the end of the right. story. But, uh, yeah. but you know, because he was uh, in school and a student, uh, he was uh, assigned not to, he was, the, the army decided, well, you're going to be an officer. Oh. You've got an education. Congratulations. You're a Soviet officer now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so we're, we'll get on with the story in a second. So basically this guy's just caught at the wrong place at the wrong time, trying to survive the depression, like you said. At least they can grow food there. But uh, Germany invades, you know, they turn their back on the Russians. They, they invade and now the Soviets need every little, you know, every man they can get, you know, that can uh, hold a weapon and fight back. But I do have to ask... Uh, why did you decide to do a trilogy besides the obvious reason it would have made a very it would have made for a very thick book? But uh, I was just wondering if there was anything else uh, behind that thinking. Well, I, I really struggled to write this story for a long time. Like I started, you know, making notes and interviewing Maurice uh, right. various times and um, and made a, I don't know how many attempts to start writing the book. And I always sort of got you know, bogged down. And I was wondering, well, if I write it this way um, and start at this point, and then go to a flashback to another point, because mm-hmm. there are so many different scenes, I thought this would be a great opening. Right. Uh, and finally, I was just, you know, talked to a, a friend of mine and, you know, about this. I'm having real trouble with this. And he said, well, just tell it in the order it happened. Right. But, you know, the light goes on and, well, of course. <laughs> uh, but sometimes so, you need that. So I did. And, you need that. Um, yeah. and I, the way I saw the story mm-hmm. of his wartime experience there were three phases it was his initial phase right. he's an officer uh, up to he, he gets captured and and escapes from the pow camp yeah uh with his, the men under his command he, he uh, commanded a small unit an anti-tank unit mm-hmm. and he got uh got them out too um and the second phase uh he was back at home right. in what was by this time occupied ukraine mm-hmm. And um, so joined the underground resistance army, and uh, until the, in 1944, the Soviets come back, they push the Germans back, and they retake uh, the area um, called uh, well near the city of Tarnopol, which is where he was close to mm-hmm. the closest major city to his place, mm-hmm. and um, and then they kind of you know again they notice hey here's an able-bodied young man. And he's not in the army. What's going on? So you're back in the army. Right. And uh, he was lucky, actually, that most of the records had been destroyed. So the Soviets had no clue that uh, he had actually been in the army beforehand. Right. So they just made him a private and, and uh, threw him back into the fight. Right. It, it just does. So that was the third phase. Sorry. Sorry. I, I apologize for that. That's okay. Uh, while you were speaking, I just had a light go off. He's Forrest Gump. He's everywhere. He's with everyone. He's involved in all these major events on the Eastern Front. He's a Canadian, um, Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. He's fighting for Soviet Russia. He's captured by the Germans. Uh, he, mm-hmm. Then he's going to fight. I mean, it's, it's just, and, and we haven't even gotten to the second half of the story where he's trying to, you know, worry about the threat of the Soviet Union. Because again, just like when he, when they first took him, they're like, we need you to fight with us. You belong to us now. The details don't matter. And if you keep resisting, we're probably going to shoot you because we shoot everybody yeah. that it keeps, tries to run away from us. So this is his life literally is in danger from the second that he is drafted into the Soviet army. 
Exactly. My God. Exactly. And he's in danger not just from the Soviets, but also obviously from the Germans. Right. Um, and then when he's a, a member of the um, underground, he's an intelligence officer. So, you know, he'd be immediately shot as a spy if he were caught. Yeah. Uh, he's moving information around. So he's got these little pieces of paper in code. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's incriminating. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, back in the army. So, you know, and it, as I pointed, or I mentioned at some point, it's basically a four-sided war. You've got Germany on one side, Soviet Union on, on another side, uh, the uh, pro-independent Ukrainians on yet another side, and then the Poles who see that part of Ukraine as their territory on their side. Yeah. So, uh, uh, And even amongst this, you've got divisions within every one. You've got uh, communist Ukrainians and you've got uh, Nazi sympathetic Ukrainians and communist Poles and yes. uh, anti-communist Poles. So uh, there's basically no one you can trust. Right. Yeah, there was a, this gets except for his mother. Ex, 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 of course, ex, you can always trust that. Yeah. So, but when I was reading this, I don't think I fully appreciated the numerous sides that were pulling on each other that were trying to take advantage of the lack of organization when war comes, obviously, and they're all fighting for independence. But so as as the story and as the war is going on, so he's trying to do the best he can. He's trying to get out of there. Um, he's got all these d- different sides. But I lost count of the number of people that he built a bond with that were mm-hmm. shot outright by the Soviets, by the Germans. It doesn't matter. I mean, if, if this was a movie, you would have to hire like 150 extras and you tell them, look, <laughs> you're not going to be very long in this film because you're going to get shot right away. I yeah. mean, but the emotional heartbreak that that must have put him through. But I did want to ask this. So obviously you talked to Maurice, you, you gathered information. What were some of his strongest impressions of this experience that he went through? Um, well, the thing that he, I asked him that mm-hmm. once, so what was your biggest uh, memory, most, uh, you know, the biggest impression the war made on you? Yeah. He told me it was the noise, the sound. It was mm-hmm. just, you know, the, the bombs, the planes, um, the guns going off, the cannon, right. howitzers, uh, it was just uh, the noise. And then on top of that, the fear, you know, because, you know, a shell could hit you at any second. Yeah. Oh, and uh, so, you know, they spent um, certain periods of the war, extended periods, hunkered down in a bunker or a pillbox mm-hmm. or uh, in a trench somewhere, just waiting for the other side to make a move. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so that whole time you're stressed, you're fearful, and uh, you know you can't go forward or backward. So exactly, those were his biggest things. Yeah, but it's uh, interesting. You mentioned, yeah, he made a lot of bonds. He was that kind of guy. He was um, very much at ease with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the kind of person who walked into a room and sort of took command of, of the situation all the time. Right. Uh, he was very well liked by just about everybody around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, probably a, a word for that kind of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, he's just kind of, uh, he kind of shone in wherever he went. Right. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub 
and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com so he he uh, goes through his training, which, as you can mm-hmm. imagine, has been condensed because the Germans are coming now. Um, they need as many, the Soviets need as many warriors as they can get up to at least slow down the Germans. And so yeah. he has his training. It's not the greatest training in the world. He and his men uh, get thrown into it. And you, and you do a very good job of describing, I mean, these are like 18-year-old kids, 19-year-old yeah. kids are simple farm boys, and now they have to work a complex gun or, I mean... The pressure yeah, was, put on them is incredible. Yeah, he was at twenty-one or twenty-two, yeah. twenty-two when uh, when the war started. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, and yeah, a lot of these guys are like yeah, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old. He's he and he's in command. Like yes, here you go, comrade. You're in charge of <laughs> these guys. And it's your responsibility not to tell them what to do, but to keep them alive. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so. Yeah. And again, the very first, so he's not finished the training when, you know, June 22nd happens mm-hmm. and the Soviets, uh, you know, cross the uh, border without warning. Yeah. Yeah. And the pace at which the Germans are able to cut across that part of Russia, they're able to zoom in. And yeah, these guys are freaking out because obviously the, with the, with the measurements coming over and the, and the tanks, the Germans are able to get to them very quickly, and they're still not really quite ready. And one of the things that I really liked about your your book, the trilogy, was at the beginning of it, you do a very good job of describing how Stalin's mentality is, grab as many guys as you can, throw guns in their hand, give them a couple of hours of training, throw a uniform on them, and the uniform is crap itself, and just tell them to run at the Germans. I mean, it happens over and over again. And he and Stalin doesn't give any permission to backpedal, to retreat, even yeah. though it's you know it would be militarily advantageous to do that. But then later on in your books, you, you do a really good job of describing the Russians have learned a thing or two. There's the massive bombardment. There's the planes coming over with the bombs. There's the Kyushka rockets. And then suddenly just tens of thousands of Soviet troops just charge right at the Germans. And we're talking like a hundred kilometer wide front. But even though they're, they're undertrained soldiers, they're pretty tough. But after like a six hour bombardment, you know, there's going to be a hole there, and these guys are going to be able to go in and give the, the Germans a hard time. So I really, ha- I really enjoyed the evolution of the Russians fighting because they literally had to learn as they went. Yeah, they did, and uh, you know, it, it it's a bit overstated in some books, especially in movies, mm-hmm. just how unprepared the Soviets were in 1941. Right. But it's true; they weren't prepared, and they were um, under-equipped, and a lot of their equipment was. Um, you know, just not, it was, is obsolete. Yeah. Another thing that, um, and this was another thing that Maurice sort of stressed, and this is kind of how my conversations with him started, mm-hmm. you know, it all started with, uh, 
me complaining as in the university about how bad the food was at the, uh, <laughs> at the cafeteria. And so she says, oh, you think you have it bad when I was in the army? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and you know, but yeah, they didn't often didn't have enough food, right? And uh, the reason I called the first book in the trilogy "Army of Worn Souls" was that uh, the soldiers were marching uh, so long and so far, and then without supplies, without resupply, without relief, uh, their boots wore out, right? And so the men would have to, you know, just find whatever they could. And some of them would end up wrapping their feet in newspapers yes. or stuffing newspapers into oh, what remained of the boots right. just so they could keep going. And even then it didn't, uh, it wasn't A- adequate. Right. After reading your books, I had to go look, uh, do some research on the, Studa- the Studebaker. Excuse me. Uh, I, I did not fully appreciate how many of those were shipped over. Um, and they were all over the Eastern Front. And of course, every time Maurice sees a Studebaker, he knows that the Soviets are around and he better make himself scarce. So, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was his first, yeah. uh, you know, sight of, of that brand of, of automobile. Right. And that was another thing, like, you know, at the beginning of the war, they didn't have enough supplies. But uh, he said, yeah, by the end, like, we, we started getting supplies from the Americans. Mm-hmm. It was the trucks, it was the guns, it was uh, clothes. And food, and uh, here everybody really liked the American cigarettes, right? right. And they liked the canned ham. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was Spam or Click or whatever brand Doesn't it was, matter. but they all liked it. Loved it, yeah. Oh my god. Well, see, but you, but you bring up an interesting point because Maurice probably um, more fortunate than others. You know, they have this decent farm. The, um, uh, their mother makes good food. And so Maurice is going to mm-hmm. grow up eating really, you know, to him, tasty, delicious, nutritious food. And suddenly he's oh, in the army. That, he, yeah. he learned to be a really good cook. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. But he, now he's eating scraps. And there are times when he doesn't have food and he doesn't. I mean, I was going through your book and there were moments where your, the words, the, the images uh, from the words made me hungry because he was, he spent so much time starving. I'm like, I think I'm hungry too. Oh my God. But, but I, what I did want to ask you this. So even though, and, and I wanted to make this clear to the reader. So Maurice Burry was a real person. He had these mm-hmm. really experiences and we're, go, we're going to go into this later, but you decided um, to do three works of, I'm just going to call it historical fiction. I'm not sure what the proper term is, but it's all true. It's it's all yeah, true. Yeah, it's all true. Yeah. I, I originally started, I called it um, a biography in novel form. Ah, okay. Because, like you know, it, by the time, one reason was because by the time that uh, we started doing this, it was, you know, 40 or 50 years after the war. Mm-hmm. So some of the memories start to fade. And uh, he didn't remember the na- which u- particular unit he was in. Sure. Um, and it changed a couple times, um, and didn't couldn't remember the names, uh, the last name of his commanding officers, um, so uh, things like that. And then, of course, uh, he he passed away in two thousand three. So mm-hmm. um, I, a lot of the other details I had to uh, dig up and find, you know, uh, about movements and um, of different armies and what was the actual date that this event happened. Um, you know, who was around then and um, some of the sequence of events. Right. So it took a fair bit of just historical research to dig out all that stuff. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm, I'm, I get because I'm sure a ton of research to do the background of what he went through. Mm-hmm. You had to, you know, you had to relearn it. So I, I get that. And I'm glad you did that. And it really does show in the book, but I wanted to ask you based on your research, um, what do you think that maybe people in the West 
uh, don't really get about the Second World War that people in the East would probably be more familiar with? Well, I think to me, the biggest thing is just the sheer scale of the difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Germany had at least five times as many uh, resources on the, deployed on the Eastern Front at any time compared to the West. Right. You wow. know, there were these million, multi-million man uh, operations. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets, too, had, uh, you know, something like 11 million um, men, you know, in total, uh, which just dwarfs the size of any of the Western right. forces at the time. Yeah. And the numbers of tanks and the numbers of airplanes – uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I read a book about World War One flying aces, and of course, it was all on the Western mm -hmm. Front. Uh, and you know, somebody was an ace when they shot down five planes. And then, I, doing this, I started doing research on pilots in the on the Eastern Front in the Second World War, and you know, their scores. Like here's a, an average pilot and fighter pilot shot down three hundred and thirty planes. <laughs> So, so yeah, oof. just the scale on that. <laughs> yeah, issue. that's the you know I think and the distances involved too. Yeah, um, you know in in Russia and Ukraine and uh, uh, that whole theater of operation was just immense compared to the distance you know from Normandy to Paris, for example, right. which you can drive in a couple of hours. Yeah, you know you can't do that on <laughs> the Eastern Front. You, <laughs> no, and, and that and you know doing the research too, like I. And a number of authors have pointed out, you know, the German operation in the uh, in the East was doomed from the beginning because, you know, the Soviets vastly outnumbered them, mm -hmm. and sort of just from the geography, is you you know the front widens out as you go yes. further east. Yes. So you're stretched. Even if you win every battle and you don't lose anyone. Your resources just get stretched more and more the further you go. Yeah, that that's one of the questions. Even when I was a teenager, I was like, okay, how many miles is it from Berlin to Moscow? How many mm -hmm. men do they have? What are the winners like? I mean, yeah, if, if you look at it objectively, you're like, yeah, I, this is not going to end well, but I can't tell you what to do, so you go ahead and, and do it. But, uh, <laughs> I, but, you know, oh, I did want to ask – Earlier, you were mentioning the kind of like the four-sided war. You've got Germany, you've mm -hmm. got the Soviets, you've got the Polish, you've got the Ukrainian independence. And I'm sure you did this on purpose, but as I'm going through the book, and, there, and there's so much, there's so much, uh, there's so much tension, and there's so much fear, and there's so much dread, and you, and you don't know if who's going to buy it next. And trust me, a lot of people, because this is a true story, a lot of people die in, in, the, mm -hmm. in these books. But as I'm as Maurice is trying to figure out what to do, he literally does not know who he can trust because it's a four-sided yeah. war. But here's what really got me. Everybody's trying to make their plans to be independent. Everybody's like, okay, the Soviets are going to push the Germans out. And when they do, we rise up and we'll take over and we'll be an independent nation. I mean, Poland had that. Uh, Ukraine had that. Other countries had that as well. The, mm -hmm. the uh, Baltic states. But what none of them probably knew, because they didn't really have time and they didn't have the internet and they didn't have the wider picture that we do, um, all that stuff was doomed from the start. Because like you just said, Stalin, by the time the war is over with, Stalin's got millions of men under arms that he doesn't have to let go. He doesn't have to worry about public opinion. He's a dictator. Mm -hmm. He can do whatever he wants. And so 
Everybody's got these hopes and these dreams about rising up and being free, but what they don't know is on either side of them are gigantic forces that have no intention of letting them be free. And they didn't know it, obviously, at the time, but they were going to try anyway, because I guess, you know, obviously freedom meant that much to them. Yeah, that was what I didn't mention this in the book, but uh, yeah, that was Maurice said to me many times that right. people will do anything for freedom. Yes, it's more important than life itself. Yeah, and they try. They literally sacrificed their lives. They did. Yeah. Oh, and just, and this is not a big point, but again, I just want to rec- um, congratulate you on the research because you even get to the the crappy Soviet roads, which is nothing more than a raised mound in a semi-flat and, you know, and of course, once winter or spring or whatever comes along, those things are going to be ruined or they're going to be covered in snow or whatever. But I think Maurice had to spend some time either repairing roads or help building the roads. But yeah, I can see why the Germans had such a hard time because the transportation to get to Moscow was just not very well developed. No, it was, but yeah, Ukraine is what they call black earth country. Mm. Right, so it's soft. It's very rich. That's why it's the breadbasket of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very fertile soil, but that means it's soft. And and this is something that um, Maurice pointed out. Like the number of times that a tank would just get stuck in the mud, it would sink. Right. You know, because especially these uh, the um, Soviet heavy tanks, oh, the KV yes. ones, and the ones that were called the Stalin tanks. They just you know they'd be immobile. Right. Uh, in the spring and fall, so the rainy season. So, uh, you know, and and the mud and the dust just played havoc with both sides, although uh, the Soviet weapons tend to be kind of more roughly built, mm-hmm. so they weren't as efficient, but they worked even if they got dirty. Whereas the German machines, well, you know, they're, they're not made to operate in, in dust and dirt. Right. So oh, you know, the German, uh, he would describe the German uh, machine guns as just making a buzzing sound because they were so right. fast, whereas the Soviet machine was go pop, 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 pop. <laughs> right. But of course, you got a little dirt in it and you know, the Germans don't have to clean it out. Right. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was the thing. And I've read this account before, but it never stops. It never stops amazing me. I think it was in your third book when the Soviets finally get to Berlin. They're fighting the the big battle of Berlin itself, mm-hmm. and they're looking around and they're looking at all the affluence that the Germans mm-hmm. had, the apartments, the cars, even, even the sidewalks were nice. And they're like, the Russians are like, why in the heck are you coming to where we're at and trying to kill us and take ours when clearly what you have is so much better? But of course, we know yeah. that that's not really what it was about. It was about Hitler and racism and Lebensraum and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it, it really astounded him. The uh, yeah, the the difference in wealth and you know, and they were t- they were told, well, you know, if you get hungry, it's you're on the march through East Prussia. If you're hungry, just you know, go get some food from that farm. Yeah, just take something. And they're not going to say no. Right. Yeah, they can't. You've got a gun. Exactly. Yeah, and that was another thing. There was a lot of. Um, if you're 18 years old and you're suddenly drafted into the army and you're given a gun and you're told to kill or be killed, you know, you're going to get mm-hmm. pretty savage pretty quickly. And a lot mm-hmm. of those young men took that with them when they were in Berlin. But um, it, as hard as it was to read that, you you know, that's human nature, you know, the, the desire for revenge or whatever. And plus you're 18, you know, your morals exactly haven't solidified yet. Not only that, but it was uh, explicitly uh 
made by the Soviets that yes, we're here for revenge. Good, yes. So good point. Uh, yeah, uh, and Maurice said you know, when when we were in what he called uh, the Baltics, we called them Estonia, Latvia, and Latvia, mm-hmm. um, and Poland. Right. Hands off the women. Right. And you'd be punished. Yeah. But once you got to Germany, yeah, do whatever you want. Free for all. Yeah. So and the officer said this. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. Yeah, I remember that because because a lot of the guys were like, "Yay!" And Maurice is like, "Oh, I don't want to be a, any part of this." And he and he did on a couple occasions save some people, save some young women, doing the best he could. But um, and again, I don't want to give too much away. But when he's fighting for the Soviets the second time, he is mm-hmm. lower in rank, and so he has a lot less power mm-hmm. to help people like he was the first time when he was an officer. Yes, it was. It was a very different experience for him. Yeah, uh, he he made that point quite a lot. You know, the officers were better paid; they're better dressed. Right. They had good boots. Um, you know, and uh, they had better food, right? Because yeah. the officers ate separately from the enlisted men. Jeez. Yeah. It so it's a completely different experience. Right. I think the one thing that stood out was the officers eat well, the Soviet soldiers eat less well, and then the German prisoners eat something that you can barely call food. So there was certainly a hierarchy there, but, but the Germans really didn't intend for them to live very long. So why stress over feeding the German soldiers who are prisoners? Yeah, no, the, uh, the Germans, yeah, that was another major difference between East and Western fronts that the uh, Germans, um, they're, they're prisoners. Yeah. Uh, this was written down, got half the rations on the East compared to the West. Jeez. Yeah. That was a specific order from someone in Berlin, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. So the idea was to starve the, the, uh, slabs, uh, and then that would help open up the land for the, the master race. Right. Yeah. So what were some of the other major differences, uh, between the experiences of the war on the Eastern and Western fronts? Um, again, I think the, the thing that really, uh, I like to stress is that, it was the Soviet side that really did the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. It was, they, they pushed the Germans out. And so if you look at the history of, uh, I've been brushing up on this the last few days, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, 1943 to 1945, they, the, they pushed the Germans you know, out of that entire territory that they had conquered right. very quickly in 1941. Yeah. Uh, it, and again, it's the distance involved. It's the numbers of people and it's the sacrifices the Soviets lost, I think the sort of general consensus now is 20 million people mm-hmm. during that war, right. which was, you know, the entire population of France at the time, right? Yes. Uh, um, and uh, so, you know, and I, 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 you know, forgive me for perhaps offending some of your listeners, but I get uh, frustrated when, when I see, you know, Hollywood depictions that America won the war oh, you, when it you was didn't the, know Soviets, that? the Russian people who really did, yeah, no. did most of the work. We won the war, the British won the war, but it was really the Soviets. Who was it that said <laughs> that basically the Soviets tore the guts out of the Wehrmacht? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, so they, yeah. they lost more life. So, and again, it makes you wonder how... They thought this was going to work out in the first place, but that's um, revisionist history, and and we don't have time yeah. for that. I, I did want to ask. So between all of your research, talking to Maurice, writing these books, um, what are maybe some highlights for you, or or maybe you remember other highlights from Maurice? Something that really stood out in 
all of these experiences that he had, because again, again, listeners, his life was like Forrest Gump. I mean, he was involved in so much, even if it was for a couple of minutes, even if it was just on the side of major events, you know, he was there. And, and to read your story, you really do appreciate, um, even though he was just trying to survive, we can appreciate the bigger events that he was in and around. Um, yeah, I, I, like I say, some of his stories, like, um, you know, going for for food and uh, and then the the uh, food wagon gets blown up oh, by yes. the uh, by the Germans as you know so they don't get any food um, right uh, one of the things is that yeah like his first day they deployed they get off a tr- the train um, and uh, in or outside Kiev mm-hmm. and it, the uh, rail yard is strafed by a couple of Messerschmitts, and he ends up wounded his oh. very first day. His shrapnel in his leg. Yes, and you know later in life, uh, that it was that leg that uh, gave him a lot of health problems. Oh. So uh, you know it's hard to draw that line medically, I guess. Right. But it, it struck me that uh, oh, yeah. that was a kind of a long term result. Um, and then some of the you know the moments of levity, like. Uh, you know, back uh, after the war is over and mm-hmm. he's in these various DP camps, he gets a job working for the Americans as a translator because yes. he spoke a number of languages. He right. spoke English, spoke German, spoke Russian and Ukrainian, obviously. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the Americans are throwing out fat because the, the soldiers don't want to eat that. Right. And but it's like, well, my you know, I know a lot of people who could, <laughs> could use, really this. use this right now. Yeah. So he takes he takes his uh, you know leftover food back to the uh, to the camp for the uh, refugees. Yes, that was one of the touching, very touching moments. I mean, he was literally their hero, their savior, and he was literally saving their life with that extra food. That the, yeah. you're right, the Americans, ah, we're just going to toss it out. Yeah. We're done. Yeah. yeah. You know, and they, like, yeah, that was the impression of so many. Um, Europeans to the Americans like wow you know your your soldiers are, get paid you know more uh, twice as much as anybody else right you know you've got all this food you've got all these supplies they're just really blown away by the all these, by the American presence all these cigarettes and everything yeah um yeah if I could real quick um and and if there's anything else you think of that you want to share uh, please feel free but there was one part of your book. And this is a direct quote from the records, but the fact that you chose to put it in your book and the fact that it comes true, I thought was amazing. So it's in your first book, you know, Operation Barbarossa has launched and, and Maurice finds out that he and a lot of others are going to suddenly be uh, training to be in the military. And I think it's one of the uh, commission, commissars, the political officers that come around and they go and they have a statement for everybody to, you know, buck up the troops. And this statement is, uh, Comrade Stalin has withdrawn to prepare plans for the annihilation of the invaders and the destruction of the bloodthirsty fascist Hitlerite regime and the liberation of workers from Poland to Berlin. And if you Mm -hmm. stop and think about it for a second, that's exactly what Stalin does. Yes, they almost, you know, almost, uh, there's a little uh, scare there at the beginning with Moscow, but he literally builds his army, learns how to fight, because at first Stalin was making horrible decisions, and they literally do take the fight all the way to Berlin. So as far as a statement of what the Soviets want to do, that was it, and they were able to make it happen. Yeah, it's it's one of those... Examples where a, I guess a leader 
provides the vision exactly. for, yeah. for others. Kind of like Kennedy did when he said, we're going to put a man on the moon before the decade is over. Give him a goal. Exactly. Yeah. And Maurice got to be a part of the last part of it because, you know, he goes into Berlin as well. And um, mm-hmm. But again, at the beginning of your book, um, when you're just talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of under-trained, under-equipped Soviet troops just running at the Germans, I found myself going, no, stop, you know, yelling at the book, <laughs> not that it's going to do any good, but... You know, just within minutes, you know, tens of thousands are mowed down by machine guns or can or whatever. But eventually the Soviets learn how to coordinate their air, ground, infantry power. But a lot of people had to die before they learned those lessons. A lot of, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it really, I think it came, yeah, it came down to learning. And, and don't forget that after those purges, uh, Stalin, oh, that's right. Stalin purged the army, armed forces yeah. in the 1930s. So there were very few people who had uh, experience yes. in command and, and coordination, uh, and they had to learn this the hard way. Oh my but they did. And then the other thing is they, they just um, eventually brought up so much more um, uh, resources, men, uh, tanks, yeah. airplanes. Uh, you know, I just like I said, I was brushing up, uh, reviewing some of the history because it's been a few years since I published these books. Sure. But um, you know, they outnumbered, you know, the Germans by the end of the war. In, in terms of men, it was more than two to one. They had five times as many uh, planes and three times as many tanks yeah. and, and heavy guns. Jeez. So it was kind of, uh, it, it's kind of amazing that the, the Germans resisted as long as they did. Right. Now, for the listeners out there, I know we're kind of bouncing all over the place. I apologize for that. And, but again, we're trying not to give too much of the way in case you want to check this out, but it is a, an incredible tale. So, so he gets drafted. He fights for the Soviets for a while. He is captured by the Germans, but then he's able to, with some help, but we'll save that for, uh, for the readers. He's able to get away. He gets back to the Soviets, eventually makes his way to the, to the, uh, Americans because everybody, and you, you stress this in your book, everybody's trying to rush to get to the Western powers because they know the, Westerners are going to be a lot more lenient or merciful on these guys. Um, and so that was yeah. a big motivating factor for them. Yeah, the Germans were actually, yeah, uh, in some cases, almost inviting the uh, Western powers to right. come on, hurry up, get to Berlin, because we really don't want to uh, surrender to the Soviets. Exactly. All right. And they, and they knew the Soviets were out for revenge, yeah. and, they, and the Germans knew why? <laughs> yeah, they made it quite clear with their words and actions what they were up to. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and that was the problem too. Like, uh, so Maurice, after the war, mm-hmm. couldn't just sort of up and, and leave, even though you know the war is over. There's no, yeah, um, there's no reason, right? He's not endangering anyone if he leaves the army, but uh, yeah. the the communists didn't see it that way. Yeah. So. Um, he was always looking over his shoulder for the NKVD at any time. And there were squads of uh, soldiers at the end there in Berlin and elsewhere, you know, mm-hmm. looking for uh, former Soviet soldiers who thought, yeah, I think I'm going to go to the West. Right. Yeah, we need you to come back home. And this this might be um, beyond the purview of your research in your book, but you do make it clear at the end of the book that, it was one of the many agreements of Yalta. Stalin was like, everybody should go back to their countries. Uh, 
you know, yeah. for it, it, at the very least for organization so we can see who is still alive or whatever. But that was the very thing that the people were trying to avoid. But the Americans mm-hmm. and the British had to help them get their people back because they agreed at Yalta. So a tough situation. Yeah, yeah and it's it's a sticking point, a sore point for a lot of people from Eastern Europe, uh, even today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why did they you know, give us up at Yalta? Mm. Yeah, that uh, that and of course that's a whole other story. Uh, FDR was far from his peak. Uh, let's put it that way when he's uh, when he's at Yalta, he's near his death, obviously. So uh, mm, I think that was the last conference. Yes, wasn't exactly. It? And I think I think FDR was like, you know what? I'm a, I can only get so far with Stalin. It's not like he could make him do anything. You know, <laughs> Stalin had the largest army in the world, or at least no one was, made Stalin exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So I think FDR was like, I'll, I'll take what I can get, but there's not much I can do in case he says no. And that was one of the instances where Stalin's like, nope, everybody should go back to their country. Um, and w- w- good or bad, that's what happened. Yeah, this didn't make it into my book either, but I did find a, at some point, I forget exactly where now, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, at these various conferences, some of the other uh, uh, officials, uh, I think Americans would say, you know, when you negotiate with the with the Russians, you're always negotiating twice, <laughs> because you know you say, you start off at one point and through the day you negotiate a way up to a certain point, and then you know it's night and you say we'll pick it up again in the morning, right. and next morning you're you're you know start negotiating again. The Russians are well, you've already given this this now we want more. Right. Yeah. Yes. But I mean. They've been attacked twice, you know, and so I'm sure Stalin is like keenly um, aware of wanting to protect his border from another war. So, so on one hand, I can get his paranoia, but it, he was certainly had a rough approach uh, when it came yes. to foreign policy. Let's just leave it there. But uh, uh, is there anything else? And again, I encourage everybody because I burned through these three books in in four days. Absolutely loved it. The first one is Army of Worn Souls. The second one is Under the Nazi Heel. And the third one is Walking Out of War. Um, is there anything, is there any uh, final thoughts you'd like to share with us uh, before we let you go? Um, well, I just, I'd like to encourage uh, everyone who is at all interested in uh, history or uh, World War II history to dig a bit deeper, uh, you know, I'd love it if you all went out and bought my books. That'd be great. Right. But, uh, you know, you don't have to do that. There are a lot of good books on uh, on the so the war in the East. So mm-hmm. um, dig a bit and uh, learn a bit about it. Maybe explode some of those myths about uh, where all the, you know, the, the biggest battles were. Right. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of really exciting and interesting stories to be found. Yeah. Well, Mr. Brett, I'd like to make a counter proposal. Yes. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of books out there on the Eastern war, but how many other books are out there about Maurice Burry? (laughs) Well, there's only three. (laughs) (laughs) And those are yours. No, but seriously, uh, people, you should check these out. Uh, Scott Burry, Burry is the uh, author B U R Y. Um, I, I enjoy these very much and you will learn a lot because there's a lot of detail in here. So, Mr. Burry, thank you for these books and thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much, Ray. I really enjoyed our talk. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. 
And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.